Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is Paul's letter to the Galatians, verses 13 through 26. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it was just shy of a decade ago that the late Phyllis Tickle composed a pretty remarkable book about the then just starting cultural upheaval taking place around the globe and in the church. And the book is titled The Great Emergence. And in it, Tickle posits that every 500 years or so, the culture undergoes this massive era of ground shift, and the church undergoes what she refers to as a rummage sale or an attic sale. She illustrates this phenomenon by going through the history of Christendom and seeing where these things take place. Around the year zero by our calendar, of course, was the event of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And not quite 500 years after that was the acceptance and establishment of the church as part of the Roman Empire. Around 500 years after that was the great schism between the Eastern Orthodox and what would then become the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and then jump ahead 500 years from there and you land right in the Protestant Reformation. Though Tickle wrote primarily about Christianity, she says that the same can be done with our roots in Judaism as well, pointing out that events like the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and then back to the reign of King David, which is around 1000 B.C. So our last major cultural and ecclesial upheaval was around 1517 A.D., when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, or something similar to that that would at least spark that legendary story. Luther criticized the church's practice of selling indulgences and wrote about their misalignment with the scriptures. 
And for his public criticism, Luther was excommunicated, labeled a heretic, and brought before the assembly of the Holy Roman Church for trial what is known to history as the Diet of Worms. That took place in 1521, and he was given the opportunity to recant his criticism, and he refused, and so he became an outlaw to the church. Powerful German royals protected Luther, and because he was able to continue to lead, write, and organize, he was able to initiate a very significant shift in the life of Christian faith. Luther's stance on indulgences, the access people gained to Scripture through advances in printing, and the growth of enlightenment ushered in a world of Christian faith that looked so different from the traditions of the Catholic Church at that time that they would barely recognize what we do today, even in our most traditional of services. And it wasn't until around the 1950s that eventually the Vatican II Council helped to heal some of these rifts between the Protestant and Catholic Church, and many of these reformations would take root even in Roman Catholic doctrine. And so if we jump ahead 500 years from Martin Luther's trial, that lands us exactly at our current age. And maybe you've noticed it. Maybe you've noticed the rise in significant shifts in culture and in politics. Maybe you've noticed these massive global events that might change the ways that we've considered things like work, connection, and even worship. Maybe you've noticed some of the strife in our religious communities, and the United Methodist Church is not alone in that. Ask any of your Southern Baptist friends about Beth Moore, complementarianism, or CRT we've all got some internal strife, and it's worried me. To be honest, it obviously still concerns me. Nobody enjoys strife. I don't know people who join a church just to look for fights with other people, and I'm not saying that those people don't exist. I just don't know them. Most of us are inclined towards wanting to live lives that are living out the loving ideals and the teachings of Jesus. And yet here we are, ready once again to excommunicate one another, declaring, here I stand, I can do no other. And we may not recognize that this is all going according to schedule, if Phyllis Tickle is to be believed. See, what happens in these rummage sales is that the surrounding culture experiences some sort of overall unrest. And because cultures shift and change, the global church undertakes some significant shifts as well. Some are subtle and technical, Some feel to those of us comfortable in the current expression of the church that the baby Jesus is being thrown out with the bathwater. But the church that is emerging basically takes inventory of how the current age is expressing faith in Jesus. Then they start to play with ideas about what is essential, what is purely cultural, and what does it look like to take this faith that's been passed on to us and connect it with a world that's being unveiled before us. The emerging Christians are not infallible. Not every part of the attic sale gets it right. Sometimes there are overcorrections. Sometimes there are necessary correctives. But regardless, time and the church both march on, ready or not. The great emergence does take a look at some of the ways that our current age has engaged these tensions and battles that almost certainly come with this time of transition. She takes For example, the Protestant pillar of sola scriptura, or under the authority of scripture alone. It was Luther's way of offering a corrective to the leadership of the church of his time, saying that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient to secure the salvation of those who trusted him. 
There were necessary acts of penance required, according to the Church of Luther's time, which happened to involve almsgiving and charity to the church in order to make sure that me and my loved ones didn't spend excessive time in purgatory where we'd be tortured by flames until we were sufficiently purified either by time or the proper amount of currency which would purchase liberty and gain our entry into heaven. Salvation through Christ is a pretty solid scriptural approach and understanding. Salvation by having someone pay your way out of a temporary hell bath seemed to be a man-made construct. Sola Scriptura was a way to counter that type of requirement of faith that went above and beyond the calling of Scripture. The Great Emergence points to ways that this plain reading of Scripture has already started to not exactly erode, but to be understood in our current context. Our culture has seen that type of shift in the larger church's attitudes about things like divorce, nowhere near the taboo that it once was in the church. And we've seen shifts in the gifts and graces of women being accepted into positions of pastoral leadership. These things aren't born of a failure to take Scripture seriously. It's a chance to interpret Scripture in light of a new context, and context does matter. As United Methodist people, we should be fairly well suited to appreciate and understand that. From the Anglican tradition, which gave birth to this Wesleyan Methodist movement, we have proclaimed prima scriptura from our inception. That is to say, the Bible is our primary source of authority when it comes to understanding truth, but Methodist nerds who know a different quadrilateral than we've been spending time with on the whiteboard understand that through scripture we understand truth approached through the lens of tradition, understood through reason, and personally known through experience. Scripture is primary, but not solitary in our discernment. But for many in this Protestant era, there is a bit of a last stand when it comes to upholding the concept of sola scriptura, that if this wall cracks, then the defenses crumble. And that specific battlefield is currently around human sexuality and how we are in ministry with those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and so on. Wonder why this has been such a point of contention for traditionally leaning folks? It's probably because this is where the age we're in and the age that we're entering are having serious and important discussions about the center of authority for people of faith and what is trustworthy when it comes to eternal matters, not just legalism that jumps to the microphone in a lot of these conversations. And why is it so important to those who are leaning progressive? Because this age we're in and the age we're entering are having a very important conversation about justice and equitable treatment. And prophets are trying to offer a voice and presence that not only calls for access to things like marriage and ordination, but also protects vulnerable people from violence, deepening depression, and suicidal ideation. There is a lot at stake, and I want to handle it with care. And so we come to our first lesson this morning. Our freedom in Christ leads us to serve and not destroy one another. Our freedom in Christ leads us to serve and not destroy one another. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. The Apostle Paul, who penned this letter, is a Jewish convert to Christianity. Back when he was known as Saul, he was a very devout adherent to the Hebrew law. 
Paul tells the church at Philippi that he was circumcised when he was eight days old. He was a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. He was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He was so jealous that he harshly persecuted the church. And as far as righteousness, he observed the law without fault. So if there was a box to check for faith in his upbringing, Paul could check that box. He could color inside the legal lines that were set before him, but he encountered Jesus and that changed everything about his life. He went from persecuting the church to joining it, all because Jesus offered him a gift instead of a wage. Paul imagined his effort would earn him a wage of God's favor and eternity, but it was by trusting the gift that was offered to Paul through the sacrifice of Jesus that he came to know acceptance and freedom and love. And because Paul recognized that it was the righteousness of Jesus and not his own religious works that had afforded him a restored relationship with God, the Holy Spirit would then use Paul's surrendered heart to take the message of Christ's gift of forgiveness and salvation to a group of people that had not been yet invited into a relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel before, and that were the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. A debate was raging in the early church, however. Should converts of the way... Converts to Christianity have to first show their obedience to Hebrew law and receive the mark of circumcision, or is trusting in Christ's work sufficient without first going through the act of circumcision? And let me tell you, if you think it's hard to invite people into a relationship with Jesus Christ these days, think about how tough it would have been when they were still unsure about whether or not men would have to have their foreskins removed in a religious ceremony before they could join the fellowship of believers. And people were willing to do it. Jesus meant that much to them. The Galatian church had been born with the knowledge of this freedom to trust in Christ, not rely on these external acts of adherence to the law, and that the work of Jesus on the cross was enough to win their forgiveness and eternal life. They need only trust in what Jesus had done. But other Christ followers, who Paul referred to as Judaizers, they went to different Christian communities trying to convince Christ followers that their faith was illegitimate if they did not also adhere to the circumcision requirement for the Hebrew people. We get a beautiful picture of the early church being this experience of daily communion and sharing the stories of Jesus and being a fellowship of mutual charity and self-giving love. And that was one of the big reasons why people were drawn by the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ, even in times of persecution. The love and charity stood out in a self-serving world. But the church could also do what the church has always seemed to do, to criticize, complain, argue, gossip, and name call, and no other issue in Paul's time was as contentious as circumcision. So from the beginning, the church has apparently been super interested in what people do with their private parts, and our focus hasn't seemed to change very much in 2,000 years. But it wasn't about private parts, obviously. It was about authority. What is trustworthy? What can we rely upon to uphold this relationship with God? We know what has been important, but things are obviously changing. What's important in light of this new world that's being ushered in? So Paul argued passionately for faith alone in Christ. He argued passionately for us to experience freedom in Jesus. He also told Judaizers occasionally that they should go ahead and castrate themselves if they're so keen on circumcision. But the part that we focus on in Paul's 
uh, call to not use freedom to destroy. We get to use our freedom not to bite and devour one another, but to serve one another. It's basically a calling to disagree in ways that don't invalidate our Christian witness. We get to disagree. We get to argue our positions passionately. We get to feel very strongly about our positions of justice and moral right, but we don't get to do it in a way that dehumanizes or denigrates another human being, even if they're doing that exact same thing to us, even if. Maybe this is part of the cross that Christ calls disciples to take up and carry daily as we follow him. Our second lesson this morning is this. The Spirit sets us free from legalism and free from the sin that separates us from God. The Spirit sets us free from legalism and the sin that separates us from God. Paul continues. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do what is evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But you are, but when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, this age of Christ followers lacks a clear and consistent ethic of sexuality, and it's not enough to adopt the West's cultural ethic of adult and consensual. That is a baseline, but there's more to a Christian approach to a sexual ethic than we're adults and we can do whatever we want. The larger culture can hold that, and it is better than nothing. But there should be something about the Christian ethic that is defined by mutual, self-giving, and unconditional care for a person beyond utilitarian physical release. It is an overstatement to say that Scripture is crystal clear on sex and family. There are just enough stories that involve polygamy and concubines that make that a pretty tough claim. And that's not to say that Scripture doesn't uphold ideals about things like marriage and intimate relationships. Ultimately, marriage and sexuality are called to reflect the loving relationship that Jesus has with the church. In essence, we're to treat those relationships with the same grace and dignity that Jesus treats us. We're not to be used and abandoned. We're to be loved and to love. And in being loved, we get to grow to better reflect that divine image. We can try to make sexual intimacy and marriage about other things, but these are upheld through Scripture as the height not only of these most intimate bonds, but of all of our relationships. And so I'm going to invite you to stay with me because we're going to go through some things that are just difficult. And please know that I want to have this conversation just as, as gently and kindly as possible. Hard conversations mean we can't gloss over the tough stuff. And so here's the thing. For the history of global Christianity, sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage, and that has been affirmed consistently by the church over the ages as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman and the United Methodist Church has upheld that understanding ever since the verbiage was codified in our Book of Discipline in 1972. And why 1972? 
It's the first general conference after the merger between the Ecumenical United Brethren and the Methodist Episcopal Church, and it was shortly after cultural events like the Stonewall Riots that brought the fight for the rights of people who are gay and lesbian to the larger public conscience. And here's what our, our Book of Discipline states today, and it's dry language, but I think it's important for us to hear together, and this includes some affirmations and two significant prohibitions. One is in our social principles and the nurturing community about human sexuality. We affirm that sexuality is God's good gift to all persons. We call everyone to responsible stewardship of this sacred gift. Although all persons are sexual beings, whether or not they're married, sexual relations are affirmed only within the covenant of monogamous heterosexual marriage. We deplore all forms of the commercialization, abuse, and exploitation of sex. We call for strict global enforcement of laws prohibiting the sexual exploitation of children and the adequate protection, guidance, and counseling for abused children. All persons regardless of age, gender, marital status, or sexual orientation, are entitled to have their human and civil rights ensured and to be protected against violence. The church should support family in providing age-appropriate education regarding sexuality to children, youth, and adults. We affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. All persons need the ministry of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment, as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. The United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. We affirm that God's grace is available to all, and we will seek to live together in Christian community, welcoming, forgiving, and loving one another as Christ has loved and accepted us, we implore families and churches to not reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. That's, that's in our book of discipline. There's another article that talks about inclusiveness. It's article four. It says the United Methodist Church is part of the church universal, which is the body of Christ. The United Methodist Church acknowledges that all persons are of sacred worth. All persons without regard to race, color, national origin, status, or economic condition shall be eligible to attend worship services, participate in programs, receive the sacraments upon baptism, be admitted as baptized members, and upon taking vows declaring the Christian faith, become professing members in any local church in the connection. The United Methodist Church, no conference or other organization or unit of the church shall be structured as to exclude any member or any constituent body of the church because of race, color, national origin, status, or economic condition. There's paragraph 214 talking about eligibility. The United Methodist Church is part of the Holy Catholic or Universal Church as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. In the church, Jesus Christ is proclaimed and professed as Lord and, saviors, and Savior. All people may attend its worship services, participate in its programs, receive the sacraments, and become members in any local church in the connection. In the case of persons whose disabilities prevent them from reciting the vows, their legal guardian, themselves members in full covenant relationship with God and the church, the community of faith may recite the appropriate vows on their behalf. There are qualifications for ordination in paragraph 304.3. While persons set apart by the church for ordained ministry are subject to all the frailties of the human condition and the pressures of society, they are required to maintain the highest standards of holy living in the world. The practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Therefore, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be certified as candidates, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve the United Methodist Church. And then paragraph 341.6. Ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted by our ministers, and shall not be conducted in our churches. 
And then there are other points where it talks about how general board and financing can't go towards promoting politics on either side of debates around sexuality. These statements have brought, have come to a head for many reasons about why the United Methodist Church is not so united anymore. I know for a fact that one of the reasons that I was appointed to St. John's is because I'm a pretty tough guy to pin down on politics and polarizing issues. I'm not necessarily a centrist, but I can sure come across like one. St. John's has had an experience of a bit of whiplash when it comes to pastoral leadership on this matter, and because I've been seen as a steady hand, the cabinet and bishop who appointed me thought that maybe I could lower the static in the atmosphere a little bit, and that's something that I can do. But before I turn to the whiteboard, I'm going to share with you a little bit of my journey. And you may think during this story, do we really need to hear what another middle-aged straight white guy thinks? I get that. I just want you to know my heart. You may think, well, that must put you in a bit of a bind, Grant, or even, does he expect us to feel sorry for him? No. I'm just going to share my story. You feel how you want, and I'm a big boy, and, and we'll make it. So I was raised largely secularist. The church I attended as a kid was a live-and-let-live kind of church, and so I don't recall hearing much about troubling social issues growing up. It's largely an affirming body now, the denomination that I was a part of before, but it's not monolithic in that. And when I walked away from faith post-confirmation, I was still an agnostic deist, I guess, but it didn't do much to form my own sense of sexual morality. I spent a lot of time in places like theater and music and creative arts programs, and if I can generalize, though people were not necessarily so much out at the time, there was a general sense of tolerance, if not a particular sense of affirmation. Whatever people did was not a big deal, and my live-and-let-live attitude continued unchallenged. Once I got married, it was a fairly conservative and evangelical church in our United Methodist tribe that helped me to encounter Jesus. I trusted in Christ's love and grew in faith and began to study Scripture for the first time from a perspective of faith. And here's what I understood at that time. God designed human intimacy. God is not without opinions on the matter, and Scripture contains a number of those opinions. God reserves the right to ask us to lay down even that which is most important to us, most precious to us, which could include sexual intimacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. A single and celibate Paul had a lot to say, or at least enough to say about that. And so I had an opportunity to develop a bit of an understanding of sexuality that aligned with a fairly conservative approach to sexual purity. It was pretty convenient that I started to encounter that epiphany around the same time I was in a committed and uh, covenant marriage. It made checking those religious boxes much easier for me. And in this understanding, there is such a thing as a literal hell. And for those who are unrepentant in sin, there is an eternity that is us spent apart from the presence of God. And so love in that mindset doesn't look like live and let live. Compassion in this understanding does not allow for someone to face eternal death unwarned. So that's, that's part of where I've come from. That is, if homosexuality is considered a sin. And that is a real major frontline issue in this emergent battleground. I've read scriptures that lead to the understanding of homosexuality being incompatible with Christian life, and I've studied them, I've done the word work in the original Hebrew and in the Greek. There is just enough nuance in the text for translators to replace homosexuality with things like male prostitution or pedophilia in several instances. And what I've come to discover is the passages are crystal clear if you want them to be, 
and they can be nuanced if you want them to be. That is something I can argue pretty convincingly on both sides, and so that, that's not my battlefield. That may be your battlefield. I understand that for bodies like the Catholic Church, marriage and ordination are sacraments, and the church wants the government to define sacraments as much as, about as much as we want the church to define laws for the government. But for the United Methodist Church, marriage and ordination are means of grace, not exactly sacraments, and like other means of grace, we don't typically close them off to people. I truly get both sides of that understanding and debate as well. That may be your battlefront, but that's not my battlefront. There are two things that make me lean ever so slightly in one direction, and one is a statement by Paul's teacher Gamaliel. When Christ's follower Peter was arrested and brought before a religious council for ministering in the name of Jesus, we read in Acts 5, one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care of what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow Thaddeus who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning on doing these things merely of their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if they are from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourself fighting against God. Gamaliel was a very powerful transitional figure. This Jesus guy and his followers were throwing off everything this very wise religious leader had known. He understood something powerful, though. If God isn't in something, it's going to fizzle. But if God is in something, you don't want to fight against it. I understand that we're in the midst of an attic sale that's taking place. The church that will be may be as foreign to me as the Catholic Church of the 16th century is, but that doesn't mean it isn't coming. And I understand myself to be a part of a time of transition. What's coming may look different from what I understand, but I don't want to find myself fighting against God. And here's the other thing. In John chapter 8, we read the story about a woman who was trapped in adultery and brought before Jesus. And the law had a clear prescription for what was to happen to that woman. She could have been stoned to death by the crowd that brought her before Jesus with this accusation. But Jesus stood between this angry crowd and the accused woman. He stood in the way of their stones. He knelt to remind them of the laws that might cause them to stand in the place of the accused. They dropped their stones, and the woman stood free of condemnation. Before Jesus spoke the words, go and sin no more, he was her shield against condemnation from others. I've spent a lot of time seeking God, and I know people will come to many different conclusions by doing the same. And I know my position on this particular spectrum may be disappointing for some. But here's where I have clarity. I don't know what God intends for the future, or if this is part of the time of transition that will stand. I do know that I'm not going to fight against God, and I haven't stood in the way of near as many stones as I need to. I haven't given enough evidence of a sacrificial love for a group that has heard hatred and condemnation for so long. Why in the world would you trust your life to a God who shames you? Why in the world would you approach a God who hates you? I can't add to that. 
I know from scripture that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And I'm not focusing on repentance from any sort of particular sexual anything, but the kind of repentance that every human, human who is born to the earth needs to experience when we stand before the matchless love made known to us through Jesus Christ. And so when I look at myself on this, this spectrum, between affirming, which is somebody who, who celebrates and who is very, very open to celebrating the gifts and graces of those who are LGBTQ in the community. And this, which is traditional, somebody who would uh, stand um, with the traditional definition as it exists in maybe our Methodist Book of Discipline. I would put myself really right about here. It's not, that's not impressive. It's not impressive at all, but that's, that's where I can stand. I'm still a man under authority. I've made commitments to uphold the standards of the United Methodist Church, and I willingly submit to that. That is where you can find me until standards change. Now, St. John's has probably had a stronger affirming contingent about three or four years ago, but many people who have grown impatient with the United Methodist Church have jumped ship. I know this 200-year-old church has some uh, interest in being able to uphold a traditional understanding of scriptural holiness, and I get that. I also know the sensibilities of a university town, even one that is still technically in southern Illinois, and that probably puts the church about here. I think towards affirming. And so, you can figure out where you are on that spectrum I'm guessing if a great split happens in United Methodism, I won't feel at home on either side as people are racing to the poles of progressive and conservative doctrinal purity. I might find myself without a denomination, and that's okay because Jesus never promised me a denomination. The church survives, and my call is centered on introducing people to Jesus Christ and helping them to experience a deepening relationship. No matter what, I'm pretty sure I'll find a way to keep doing that. And then our third lesson this morning is this. In all circumstances, the faith of disciples can be exhibited through the fruits of the Spirit. In all circumstances, faith of disciples can be exhibited in the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their passions and desires of the sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Once we know where we are on this spectrum of affirmation or traditional, then we have another choice. Are we going to be activists about our stance or nice makers? Activists will raise their banners high and they'll make their position well-known and publicized. It becomes a major part of the identity of the body. Maybe it's a rainbow flag for some, or a declaration that we take a firm stance on biblical holiness. But around the middle of the traditional activist side, you've got the welcoming congregation. I'm just going to mark this in blue. And so, you know, traditional activists, I'm just going to put this as W, the welcoming congregation. You know, you can get a little bit of an understanding about that. Everyone can come as they are. There are LGBTQ folks in positions of leadership, maybe. But if someone asks about affirmation, they'll get a cringy response, something like, well, everyone's welcome here, but let's go get a cup of coffee and we can talk about it. And LGBTQ folks know that's code for, no, we're not affirming, but let me ruin this coffee for you. And so I'd say 
I'm around, when it comes to nice maker or activist, I'm probably around here. And so it's because maybe I'm a coward or maybe it's because I really do want to make Christ the center of the church's identity above every other marker. I'm not at ease with it. I don't think I'm supposed to be at ease with that. Nice makers aren't peacemakers. Peacemakers go through the hard work of justice in order to get to peace. And sometimes we fail to lift our voices against injustice or wrong so we don't make people upset. And I think that reality should agitate me at least a little bit. And I think St. John's is kind of there too. I think maybe St. John's is probably a little bit higher towards the activist level. But again, um, I think there is a bell curve on this one. I think people are going to be able to take stands on either side, but I think the strongest activists on either side of the spectrum either bailed on the UMC because Methodism made a series of disagreeable decisions or because Methodism is still entertaining debate after a series of decisions to uphold the status quo. So here are some things that I would offer as this series is concluding and we have some things to face. I am really, really grateful to serve St. John's United Methodist Church and to hold the opportunity to care for people in this congregation and in this community is precious. In my sweetest brushes with Jesus, he lets me see a glimpse of how he treasures each and every one of you, and I have a responsibility to reflect that in the healthiest and most loving way possible, and when I lack that, I regularly ask Jesus to fill in those gaps. I hope to, to help St. John's navigate the uncertainty of this time with grace and with love. Even in the face of possible separation, I hope that we can recognize one another not as adversaries, but as we would recognize Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists we encounter. There are good reasons that maybe we're not standing under those particular umbrellas, but we are all still a part of the body of Christ. We might not be able to stop schism, but we don't have to make it gangrenous. And my goal is to not conform the church to what I think or what I believe. I want to represent the love of Jesus so that the Holy Spirit might shape all of us to be more like Christ. And I take that role seriously, and I hold that role loosely. There may come a point when I am not able to serve this church well if I and you and I are not confident that we can go in the same direction. And I won't try to make that happen, but my employment in your service won't be an idol for me either. I'll do my best to respect and honor the feelings of the people of this congregation, and I trust you'll do the same to respect and honor mine. But as I mentioned before, I'm an itinerant pastor. Like Illinois weather, if you don't like it, wait around. It's going to change. So don't feel compelled to make these decisions on me. Determine to honor Christ and reflect God's love to one another. If we are one day confronted with the decision that we need to make as a congregation, I pray we do so displaying evidence of God's work in us regardless of the circumstance, displaying that love and even joy and peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because if we cannot go forward in those fruits of the Holy Spirit, we might think that we've sided with God, but we've shown that God is not inside us. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we face difficult times. Nobody 
asks to live in these important and decisive moments. And yet, when we are called to respond, we know that we need your guidance. We need your grace. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to love as you love. Help us to honor your heart. And though things may become very uncertain for us, things might look different from what we understand and become uncomfortable for us, God, we know that your church will stand age to age and through generations. And God, as we offer the opportunity for your grace to be made known to new generations still, Lord, we hand it over trusting that your Holy Spirit will lead and guide, that your light and your grace will continue to shine. And so we find peace in that, not in our comforts and familiarity, but in the knowledge that you are sovereign and your church will withstand. We thank you. We love you. We praise you all in Christ's holy name. Amen.